Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michalego. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Andre Gagne is full professor and chair of the Department of Theological Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. His teaching and scholarship focus on political theology, religion and violence, and the interpretation and reception of the Bible. Dr. Gagne's work and interviews have been featured over 300 times in media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, the Guardian, and many more. Today we talk about his book, American Evangelicals for Trump, Dominion, Spiritual Warfare, and End Times. Hi, Andre. Welcome to The Signal. Hello, Cyril. Thank you for having me. Well, to start us off, um, can you explain to listeners how you became interested in theological studies so much so that you decided to dedicate your life's work to it and how religion and politics intersect? Yes, yes, for sure. Uh, it's a long story. <laughs> for for several years, I was myself uh, an evangelical, uh, evangelical pastor, always interested in the Bible, uh, doing theology also. But I was a bit of an outlier in my in my milieu, you know, in my surroundings, because I liked to study, <laughs> actually to study more, not just read the Bible, but try to get the sense of you know, the historical context of biblical texts, how did they come about, uh, you know, the different challenges that we have uh, as uh, readers, especially modern readers, in interpreting those ancient texts. So I was very much involved uh, very uh, early, at, at a, y- a young age, around 12, 13, 14, in uh, evangelical churches, eventually uh, became youth group leader, uh, youth pastor, then an associate pastor, and, and had my church for a while. But I felt unsatisfied with what I was you know, learning, unfortunately, in, uh, in those circles. And eventually I, I met a, a friend who had been a pastor for several years, but I hadn't seen him for quite a long time. And uh, he started telling me that he had done a master's degree in uh, theological studies, but more specifically studying the Bible and doing biblical study at the university. So I was kind of intrigued. You know, you can actually do this in a university context. <laughs> I was intrigued because uh, what, I, what I, I knew about uh, any kind of theological studies training was more in the context of uh, you know, seminary or denominational schools or things like that, that were uh, really a kind of affiliated to a specific church or denomination. And I was really not that much aware that in the context of a, a, a kind of a public university that we can actually study theology from an academic perspective and from a critical perspective. And we can also do that with the Bible. So he said, why don't you start, uh, you know, taking a few courses at the undergrad level and you'll see if you like it, you know, and if it works. So I, I started it, started a BA and I really fell in love with this. This is what I was looking for. 
and uh, did my BA, my master's, uh, did a PhD also. I have a conjoint PhD uh, with uh, the Université de Montréal here in Montreal and the Université Catholique de Louvain in Belgium. Was quite an adventure. Eventually had a, uh, a teaching position uh, in the city of Sudbury in Ontario. It's a little mining town. I taught there for three years as a limited term appointment. And then there was an opening here at Concordia University in Montreal, and I'm originally from Montreal, so I applied. They were looking for a biblical scholar, a specialist in New Testament studies, and uh, my thesis was on that. So I, I started working uh, on that, did my, my PhD, and applied, got the job, and uh, I've been at Concordia since 2008, teaching, of course, of biblical studies, but also related things, especially in terms of politics. Uh, why politics? In fact, why study, you know, theology, politics? Uh, my research is also political theology, is because one of the things I was asking myself is I got this training in ancient texts, but people today use ancient texts they still read the Bible. Uh, Christians still do that. And uh, they try to apply that to political situations. They try to legitimize political ideas, try to push their political agendas, often using as a legitimation of that uh, their faith. And they often refer to the Bible. So I was saying to myself, you know, maybe I have something to say about that because I know what the Bible is really about. And I understand the modern reception of that text in today's world, how people read it, but sometimes don't understand the actual historical context in which this, this text emerged. And that produces, unfortunately, misappropriations of biblical texts, misinterpretations of biblical texts that sometimes can be very harmful to them as individuals, to, to communities, to Christian communities themselves, but also to society in general. And the Bible can sometimes be a source of social polarization, depending on how groups and individuals use it to legitimize uh, all sorts of ideas and policies and, and kind of stigmatize groups of individuals because of their uh, reading of what they feel is their correct interpretation of scripture. So that's, in a nutshell, I could, you know, speak about my, my, my journey for hours, but in a nutshell, it, it will give you a sense of uh, why I do this today. So when did Christian and evangelical support from Trump, former President Donald Trump, enter your radar? And what was it that made you want to investigate it so much so that you wrote a book American Evangelicals for Trump, Dominion, Spiritual Warfare, and the End Times in 2020 with the English translation coming out, uh, I believe, next month. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question in terms of Trump on my radar. It, it, of course, since 2016, um, and even prior to that in 2015, we started seeing uh, groups of evangelicals gravitate around Trump in 2015, for example, you had the Evangelicals for Trump in September of that year with Paula White Kane, who uh, kind of managed to gather a group of evangelicals to meet Trump at the Trump Tower, to hear, you know, to, to have Trump listen to their concerns, and Trump was very much open to that. So that, you know, seeing those evangelicals with my former background as an evangelical, 
and seeing how the Bible was used to prop up Trump as this kind of chosen individual <laughs> uh, by God, you know, this, this kind of Cyrus figure uh, chosen by God. And you have people like Lance Wallnau writing books on that. Uh, that, of course, piqued my curiosity. And I said, I have something to say about this because, like I said, I know what the Bible says about things like Cyrus and Jesus and the chosen one and all of that. And, and now seeing these evangelicals using and, and throwing biblical quotes left and right to prop up an individual like Trump, I, I said to myself, I have to kind of say something. That my responsibility as an academic is also a social responsibility. And uh, this is when, you know, I, I started investigating what was going on uh, with these individuals, uh, looking at also things like the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, key players that were involved in that. And that, that resonated a lot with some of the things that I had known several years prior to that, because I had, you know, I was also reading a lot of that literature in my former days. So I was very, very familiar with all of this world, with all of the rhetoric that was going on concerning Trump and the usage of the Bible. And then, you know, the book, uh, the book is, as you correctly said, is, a, is, a, is an English translation from a French book that came out in 2020. I had a colleague, uh, you know, this French book, first of all, just to kind of give you a context of how that emerged. Um, I was posting a lot on, on Twitter, uh, aspects of my research related to evangelicals and Trump and, and neo-charismatic Pentecostals and Trump and, and the rhetoric. And one of the, my, my friends, a colleague from Europe, uh, Philippe Gonzalez, is uh, a director, a co-director of a, a book collection in, uh, in Switzerland. And he proposed to me, he says, Andre, it would be great for you to actually write a book on the relationship between evangelicals and Trump for a French-speaking audience, especially us in Europe. We don't understand what's going on with these people. <laughs> we don't understand what's going on with Americans and, and religion and all of that. You know, a lot of people are, are not aware of all of this language, everything that's, you know, surrounding that. And why are they propping up this individual? It seems to be so contradictory to their own values and ethics and, and all of that. So uh, I said, yeah, th thank you for this offer. And, uh, you know, this was early 2020. It was third week of February 2020. And they said, you know, we would really like this book to come out right prior to the election. Like maybe if we can get it out like in September of 2020, uh, you know, that's going to generate a lot of interest and people you know, will buy the book and so on. So essentially, I had about three months to write the book. <laughs> it, 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 it was a it was a a marathon. It was crazy, and I was writing seven days a week, uh, really collecting material, making this book uh, accessible for the non-initiate. This is very important because a lot of people are not aware of these groups, these individuals who who's Lance Wall now, who's Paula White Kane, who are all of these people, C.P. or Wagner. What do they believe? Uh, where does that come from? How do they use the Bible? What does the Bible mean for them? So I had to kind of create something accessible that was still academic, but accessible for a general audience. And uh, so the book came out uh, September of 2020. 
it, it generated a lot of attention. I had a lot of media interviews uh, in Europe uh, concerning that. And the book sold well in, in the context of a French-speaking public that is not very uh, aware of religious issues. It did very well. The English translation, that's another adventure, uh, because someone from uh, the U.S., uh, her name is Linda Shanahan, uh, contacted me. She was also following me on Twitter. And uh, Linda is an adjunct retired professor from uh, uh, Buffalo University. Uh, she read the book in French, actually. And she was saying, uh, Andre, you know, the American public would benefit very much from this book. You need to get it translated. Uh, she said, I would be willing to translate the book. This had not really crossed my mind before Linda uh, approached me. And uh, so I said, okay, let's, 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 let's work on it, but we have to find a publisher. That's, that's always a challenge because uh, books are rarely translated from the French into English. So you have to figure out, okay, how are we going to get this done? You know, will there be a publisher interested in that? And parallel to uh, Linda starting to translate the book, uh, I had another colleague from uh, James Madison University. Her name is uh, Dr. Frances Flannery, uh, who also teaches uh, the Bible. She's interested in apocalypticism, religion and violence and all of that. She had read my book also. She was able to read French and she said, Andre, you have to get this book uh, translated and I'll help you. We'll find a publisher to, together. And she, uh, she contacted Routledge. She had published with Routledge before. And uh, she said, you have to get in touch with uh, Dr. Gagne. Uh, he, he has this book. It needs to be, uh, we, it needs to find a home. And uh, Routledge, uh, they were interested. And we got it going and, uh, you know, it was, you know, Linda was, was finishing the translation. We were reviewing all the process, making sure that, you know, the translation flowed from what was said into English. It really corresponded to what we were, we were saying. And uh, the book is coming out. It's going to be uh, ready for pre-order on the 10th of November. And uh, we're very happy. I think it's going to be a good primer. Uh, for people that are not familiar too much with this kind of uh, uh, these kinds of issues and the kind of language, because I'm very much interested in unpacking the theological ideas that are behind uh, the rhetoric that is used by many of these uh, Christian right leaders that are pushing for or have pushed for Trump or are pushing for dominion uh, in the political sphere. Well, I, I'm glad that you and your colleagues were able to make, make this happen because um, while it's a, a slim volume, it's just packed with information that anyone from, you know, just the, the average citizen and voter can use to journalists who are covering or hopefully in the future will be covering, you know, these different, the religious right and the different kind of actors and players within it, like charismatic Christians, evangelicals, and the NAR, which you, you had mentioned. Can you explain to listeners who these evangelicals and charismatic Christians are who support Donald Trump so much so that they actually think he's a, quote, chosen one? Yes, yes. 
because it's good for you to ask me this question because the book is entitled American Evangelicals for Trump. So uh, people reading the, this book will think, oh, it, it, it covers evangelicals in, in general. But I focus more specifically in what I call neo-charismatic Pentecostals uh, that are a you know, a group amongst evangelicals, but not only evangelicals, you know, you have neo-charismatic Pentecostals amongst, uh, you know, the, the, the brand amongst uh, not only uh, evangelicals, but you might find charismatic leaning uh, mainline Protestants also and charismatic leaning Catholics also. But I focus more on the evangelical neo-charismatic Pentecostals, uh, these individuals that focus more on uh, what uh, they call the work of the Holy Spirit and the place of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that emphasize also the gifts of the Spirit like prophecy, healing, miracles, uh, that emphasize often what is called the fivefold ministry, uh, especially uh, those of apostles and prophets, uh, modern day apostles and prophets. Uh, so, but, but neo-charismatic Pentecostals in, in general are the fastest growing segment of Christianity at the moment in the world. If you, if you include all of them, be they evangelicals or mainline Protestants or, or you know, some, some charismatic uh, Catholics, there's approximately somewhere between 645 and 650 million uh, neo-charismatic Pentecostals in the world. So that's a lot of people uh, in the world. And, and they do have a profound impact on the religious landscape of, of a lot of different countries like Brazil, uh, you know, South, Southern, uh, South America, South Korea, other places across the globe, in Africa also, but in the U.S. too, up to a certain extent. What we have seen with Trump is that you have main characters that fall under this rubric of neo-charismatic Pentecostals. For example, uh, we talk about Paula White Kane, uh, this, uh, this woman that, was, uh, that saw herself uh, as the kind of the spiritual advisor of Trump for many, many years. Paula White Kane often is, is associated to what we call the, the prosperity gospel a branch of uh, these, these Pentecostals. Uh, some of them don't like that <laughs> that title because they say, you know, it's not about that. But it's it's uh, for heuristic purposes. It helps us kind of classify at least, you know, some of the tendencies in terms of theology. Paula White Kane was extremely uh, instrumental in forming this coalition of evangelicals for Trump. We said it in 2015. It started there. You know, the, these people are essentially, uh, you know, people like Lance Wallnau, who understands himself as being more of a kind of uh, identifies himself as a Pentecostal or as a kind of a traditional Pentecostal, but embraces a lot of these, uh, you know, ideas that we now label or put under the label of New Apostolic Reformation. So my book deals a bit with most specifically these groups. Now, the intro to the book actually kind of situates the neo-charismatic Pentecostals as emerging from, you know, evangelicals. And then I break that down into uh, the 20th century because, you know, I can't, I can't deal in a book with uh, the entire history of American evangelicalism. It's, it's impossible. So I zero in and I explain that in a preface that I zero in on neo-charismatics 
in the American context. And I kind of explain their kind of ascension in American society through the notion of what was used by one of one one famous missiologist theologian called uh, C. Peter Wagner uh, that labels you know the movement of the spirit uh, in the 20th century as waves of the spirit. Uh, so he talks about the first wave, which would be uh, tied to the uh, the birth of American Pentecostalism at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, and then uh, you know people talk about a second wave in the 60s and 70s with the charismatic movement, where the Pentecostal experience of Pentecostals uh, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century with speaking in tongues and, and the gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy and miracles and healings and all of that, now lands into the mainline denominations, the mainline Christian denominations, like Catholics and Protestants and Anglicans and Methodists and all of that, they experience the Pentecostal experience. But then you have another wave, and this is the one that is more preoccupying, is that third wave, which emerges around the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. And, and Wagner coined the term third wave to speak of all of those evangelicals that had not experienced the Pentecostal movement or that did not want to identify themselves as Pentecostal. Because traditional Pentecostals, what they do is they, one of the, one of the key uh, experience is that of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is evidence for many of these classical Pentecostals as the initial sign, which would be of that baptism, which would be speaking in tongues. So the initial sign, physical manifestation of being baptized with the Holy Spirit for those classical Pentecostals was this idea of speaking in tongues. Charismatic renewalists uh, in the 60s also had that, but you know they had reservations. It's not just necessarily that, but it's also other gifts of the Spirit. But you had evangelicals that had not experienced the Holy Spirit itself in those dimensions that now embraced the gifts of the Spirit, but said, you know, speaking in tongues, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. It's not necessarily the initial sign that it is a proof that you are now filled or baptized with the Spirit. So there's more leeway in terms of uh, how gifts operate in their understanding of the manifestations of the Spirit with the third wave. So you have, and I explained this in, in the chapter, I, I talk about John Wimber, his association with C. Peter Wagner, the, the Vineyard Movement. So I, I, I mentioned that and how, you know, out of C. Peter Wagner's ideas, uh, C. Peter Wagner was a, an extremely prolific writer he wrote many, many books on all sorts of topics, on evangelism, on, on, on evangelism, on church growth, especially he was very much concerned with ideas of church growth. How, how can churches grow? Why do certain evangelical churches grow and others don't? And then he started realizing that, you know, the types of churches that grow are more kind of, you know, open to the manifestations of the spirit and they're more charismatically leaning churches. There are churches where, you know, how they operate in terms of uh, their governance 
uh, there's stronger leadership. There's individuals that take the lead instead of being uh, overly democratic. Right? They, 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 you know, leaders uh, assume the role and responsibility of leadership, and they give the direction to the church. They rely less on democratic decisions in terms of governance. Wagner started seeing that there were, you know, these churches that functioned differently in terms of church governance, in terms of spiritual giftings. That intrigued him. And he started, in, you know, uh, emphasizing that. He started, for him, these were new churches that he wasn't aware of, and he had to come up with a name for this phenomenon. And this is what he called the New Apostolic Reformation. In, in a nutshell, we do talk about this often as a movement, which it is in a sense, but it's more than that. It's a way of doing church. It's an, what I would call in, in technical language an ecclesiology, a way of implementing church governance. You see, that's what the New Apostolic really is about. If the Bucks County Beacon is going to be here for the long haul and save the area from becoming a news desert where extremism and authoritarianism flourishes, we need the community to invest in our independent media project so that we can continue to produce this podcast and publish news, analysis, and progressive opinion daily on our website. Go to buckscountybeacon.com support the beacon and become a monthly sustainer today. And, and, and just to clarify, so, you know, these evangelicals and neo-charismatic Pentecostals and other charismatic Christians that you're writing about who, who support Trump, they, they all fall under this umbrella of the new apostolic reformation? Now, this is, a tr- this is a good question, but it's also very tricky because this, we, we're using categories. Like when we're, we're talking about new apostolic reformation, I use this category as Wagner used it. Like I go to the sources, to the primary sources, and I say, okay, what did Wagner mean by that? And I go from his definition, and then I say to myself, okay, how does that work in relation to to his definition? Because the New Apostolic Reformation itself is, is, is constantly morphing and and moving and it changes and the emphasis change and the people and the actors, they're not always the same. To be on the same side, I go with Wagner's definition. And for Wagner, Wagner, he never claimed himself to have invented the New Apostolic Reformation. He he describes what he calls the New Apostolic Reformation as a phenomenon that for him already existed. For him, he sees like the independent church movements and the African independent churches at the beginning of the 20th century and other uh, independent movement of churches across the 20th century as being evidence of this move. What he did, however, for, for the United States and, and later on elsewhere in the, in the world, is he tried to create uh, networks that would sustain what he saw as being the New Apostolic Reformation. It's not so much that he invented that, like he gave a term, he gave a name, but to something that for him already existed. Wagner has a tendency of lumping a lot of people that would not necessarily say, hey, I'm New Apostolic Reformation. 
like he lumped people and and even some people that were kind of lumped into that and and understood as being part of this uh, movement will also admit that amongst what is called the new apostolic reformation you'll have people that are non-charismatic also that are non-pentecostal i'll give you an example at one point when wagner starts writing his books on that he's going to say that john wimber is uh, an apostle or one of the uh, one of, uh, of the founding uh, leaders of the new apostolic reformation but wimber would never have endorsed many of the things that wagner came up with the fivefold ministry stuff with apostles and his overemphasis on spiritual warfare and things like that even people like um Bill Hybels, who used to be the uh, the pastor, the founding pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, which is a non-charismatic church. Wagner lumps him into that. So we need to be very careful on how we speak about that. And in my book, I do mention the New Apostolic Reformation, but I focus more on the ideas that emerge from uh, what we can call maybe a movement. Uh, ideas of dominion, ideas of emphasis on apostles and prophets, fivefold ministry stuff, uh, ideas around spiritual warfare that are common uh, to Wagner and those that, that followed him and continue to sustain those ideas. You know, our best way to speak about these things is look at ideas and how people are influenced by these ideas. And of course, you know, you can identify people and there's a lot of that going on, which is good in, in, in a sense, because you're trying to make genealogies. You see, you're trying to associate individuals like Cheyenne, for example, was very, very close to C. Peter Wagner, right? a kind of a spiritual son of C. Peter Wagner. So you can say, OK, he's part of the New Apostolic Reformation in that sense. Uh, but they would not recognize that necessarily themselves. If you go to them and say, hey, you're part of the New Apostolic Reformation, there many of them, they're going to pretend, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that. They know what it is because they know that Wagner talked about it. But at the same time, you know, they will embrace some of the ideas of Wagner and they will, you know, discount other ideas that Wagner had. So it's hard, like it's, it's hard like to, to kind of really put a handle up on that, but we need to identify this by through its ideas. Uh, let's talk about a few of the ideas and, and let's start with, at least I think might be a, you know, a backbone of the NAR, and, which is this theology of power um, that can be referred to as dominionism as expressed through like the seven mountain mandate. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yes, yes, absolutely. Wagner recognized his own, I would say, eschatology, his view of the end time uh, shifted at one point in time. And he said, you know, I, I used to adhere to an eschatology that was a bit defeatist in the sense that I was waiting for the rapture to be, you know, church be raptured from this world because there's nothing much you can do with the world. So we're just hoping that God will save us and, you know, Bring about judgment and it's a bit of a defeatist type of, of attitude that you know some people that hold to what we call this more a dispensational eschatology or a dispensational understanding of the end times have so he says you know i've changed my perspective 
he started understanding that you know for him god's will was to for christians to build the kingdom of god on earth to establish god's kingdom on earth as expressed in the lord's prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done you see and we should be as christians involved in constructing uh you know our influence uh, on society and he recognized uh, that there was a theology that was accessible and that reflected that view, and that was dominion theology. This idea that, you know, Christians are called by God to exercise authority and to exercise their, their, their rule on earth by gaining control of cultural, social, and political institutions. And often based on a particular interpretation of the book of Genesis in chapter one of the book of Genesis, where God uh, to the humankind says, you know, go multiply and rule the, rule the earth. That influenced very much this view uh, that, uh, you know, Christians are here to build the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom of God on earth. This dominion theology for him fit very well with you know his view of eschatology and that we're here to build the kingdom of god and when the kingdom is ready then christ will return so it's a kind of a post-millennial view of eschatology and of course you know this idea of dominion how do you implement how do you influence people to mobilize and bring about this kingdom how can you influence various spheres of society so that christians will make a difference and influence society to the point that people will experience uh, the kingdom of God. They came up with this idea of the seven mountain mandate. This is not something that Wagner invented. He's actually heard this through uh, Lance Wallnau. And so Lance Wallnau, this, this kind of Christian entrepreneur, was promoting this idea that the only way you can change society is if, you know, the church penetrates various spheres of society, which they call mountains. So from that, Wall now really promoted this idea of mountain, uh, you know, politics, education, business, media, the family, uh, uh, religion, and, and so forth, various types of, of, you know, sectors in society. So the goal is to actually reach or have influencers, Christian influence at the top of those mountains. And if you if you have someone at the top, like a leader in politics, that's going to affect policy. This individual will be able to enact, uh, to have influence on, on political decisions. Someone in business will be able to have influence on economic decisions. Someone that's in charge of, you know, media or whatever, influence, you know, the content of media. Uh, have less biased media towards Christians, and so on. Wagner embraced this idea, and he says, you know, this is like the Seven Mountains Mandate is more like the marketing strategy to get the Dominion Mandate going. Dominion is the theology, and the Seven Mountain Mandate is the marketing strategy to get Dominion activated, to implement Dominion. It's essentially that. Uh, Trump was was instrumental in their mind uh, to facilitate 
that that strategy of the seven mountains. Yeah, yeah, that kind of you know I- imperfect vessel of God, which is why like we all now you know uh, compared him to King Cyrus, the rich king of Persia who worshipped false gods, right? So you know, as this um, NAR movement seeks to expand its dominion over these seven spheres or seven mountains, they view opposition as demonic and actually use that term. We've actually seen it here, you know, at a local school board in in Central Bucks School District in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where one of the current board members who as a candidate gave a speech warning the community that quote demonic adults recruiting brainwashing and participating in unconscionable behaviors with children and all of you know it it, it, it's pretty common it's pretty widespread at least among the followers of of this movement this nar movement that you've talked about so how, how did this like spiritual warfare framing make its way into this movement. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that too. Uh, there's a lot there. And you're right. There's a there's a real uh, mainstreaming now of uh, this idea of uh, demonic influence, that people are under the powers of, of demons and things like that. And, and this mainstreaming, I think that the mainstreaming of spiritual warfare ideas how, and how they understand this concept, I think that the person that's responsible for this mainstreaming, I think, is is Paula White Cain. Uh, because Paula White Cain, uh, as Trump's spiritual advisor, opening up rallies, if you remember, she was the one opening up big rallies uh, before Trump gets on stage, having, uh, you know, this uh, these rallies where she asks people to pray, opening rallies, and then does spiritual warfare prayers in the rallies, like, a, uh, for example, during Trump's re-election kickoff uh, rally in uh, in uh, at the Amway Center in Florida, she opens up with a spiritual warfare prayer with 20,000 people in, in the audience. And she's talking about protecting President Trump from, from spiritual attacks from, from demonic entities and demonic networks and so on. So, you know, this is mainstreaming this language. And, 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 and it's mainstreamed so much so that even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a uh, presidential candidate for the Republican Party, was uh, starting off rallies, paraphrasing a passage from Ephesians 6, saying, you got to be ready for battle, so put on the full armor of yeah. God, take a stand against the left schemes, um, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist exactly. you will face fire from flaming arrows but the shield of faith will protect you so yes DeSantis too he's borrowing from this, this stuff he's a catholic he knows also the biblical language he's aware of that but he adapts you know using and paraphrasing specific biblical texts uh, to address some of the concerns of the people that support him but the idea of spiritual warfare we have to be clear on this this uh, you know the idea of spiritual warfare itself is a christian idea you know christians have always thought of this idea of spiritual warfare that they are engaged in a battle against sin temptation forces of evil and and so on you can read this throughout early christian literature uh middle age literature it's there the the issue is more about you know, what stands do you take in spiritual warfare? Do you have to go on the offensive and, you know, start 
uh, demonizing adversaries and engaging in warfare prayer and binding spirits in the heavenlies and all of that. No, this is completely, <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't have that. You know, the verses that they use, even using the Bible to, you know, we're binding the spirit of occult over this uh, region or whatever. This idea of binding and loosing uh, in the Bible, it has nothing to do with demons bound in heaven. You see, it has nothing to do with that. It has something more along the lines of church discipline and, and church authority. Uh, but it has nothing to do with binding spirits in, in the heavens. See, Peter Wagner, again, is, a, I would say, is really the one that systematized this demonology. You see, you, you like I have books at home from Wagner that are strictly on spiritual warfare. <laughs> like it's it's like I, there was one time in his in his career he was literally obsessed with this idea so much that this created a rift with his friend John Wimber. Wimber said, "You you're going too far with it. spiritual warfare." For Wagner was this idea that. Christians are engaged against spiritual unseen forces that have an influence on individuals, but it could have influence on co entire communities, on, on businesses, on neighborhoods, on countries. And he identified levels of spiritual warfare in his conceptualization of demonology. He says, you know, there's three levels. First of all, there's the ground level spiritual warfare which is illustrated in the Bible where Jesus encounters, for example, people that are demonized, exorcisms, ground level, day-to-day -day conflicts, people engaged in deliverance ministries, for example, they do ground level spiritual warfare. And then he spoke about occult level spiritual warfare. So people that are engaged, for example, in things like the occult, the new age, free mass masonry, things like that, false religions, there are demonic forces that are keeping people blind to the truth of the gospel. And we need to engage in a spiritual battle through prayer, fasting, to, to dislodge these e evil influences. And the third level, which we hear more and more, is the strategic level spiritual warfare, which deals with issues that he calls, or entities that he calls territorial spirits. And these spirits could... You know, they, they cover ground, like territories. It could be, like I said, neighborhoods, but it could be like cities that are under territorial bondage, evil forces. It could be like school boards. It could be, it could be a political party. For example, when you have people like Walnow talking about, you know, the demonization or the, you know, that the Democratic Party is, the, is under the influence of a spirit. So you're talking about a form of territorial, strategic, spiritual warfare that people are under the influence of demonic forces. And we need to engage in spiritual warfare through prayer, fasting, push back actions from Christians to push back the evil uh, that is permeating society. You know, you'll have different types of rhetoric that comes out of that. There are people sometimes that literally label individuals as demons. You see, talking in terms of you know, the, these people are, are demons. Others are more, are trying to be more nuanced. I don't know if it's, <laughs> it's that much of a nuance, but they will say, for example, we're not saying that people are, are literally demons, but they are influenced by demonic forces. But again, like you said, Cyril, this framing is often used to label adversaries. 
to label people that don't sing the same tune, uh, to label political, especially political adversaries. And in the days of Trump with Paula White Kane, and even today, what you see with Lance Wallnau and others that are involved in at various rallies, going to church, trying to educate people about, you know, Dominion, Seven Mountains Mandate, and taking back territory and all of that. Wallnau at one point was even talking about a, you know, a Christian populist movement that's really, you know, rising up and pushing back against uh, the forces of evil. And the forces of evil for them manifests itself through, you know, the political actions of their adversary. So that's how it's framed now. And like I said, I think that Paula White Kane was very much uh, influential in the mainstreaming of that because of the platform that she had and that she used that platform to essentially engage in public, use that rhetoric very, very frequently. And, and what became difficult sometimes, and, and I address this in my book, sometimes it becomes difficult for even journalists to navigate that. What are you, what are you talking about? You know? like, and this is where I think my book and others that have been working on those questions the goal is to kind of unpack these things and help people understand uh, what they mean by that and what are the implications of the, this kind of theology of power. We're not saying, we're never saying that Christians should not get involved in politics. That would be, un, you know, undemocratic to say so. You know, people could, could get involved in politics. The problem becomes when you're trying to establish Christian hegemony and when Christianity should be the primary religion and dictate the laws of the land on everybody, that's where the problem arises. It's not the fact that you're a Christian. There are Christian politicians that are able to negotiate and function in the context of a pluralistic democratic society. Do you think like the this spiritual warfare language helped lead members of this movement to participate in January 6th, because if Donald Trump was the chosen one and, you know, he lost lost this election, which they think he didn't really lose, then it must be the work of Satan. Yeah, of course. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a lot of these people that we identify as NAR leaders, they, of course, they push that. They believed in the big lie. And, and that, of course, influenced some of the members to, you know, go on January 6th. We, it's hard to quantify who exactly and how many, you know, of these Christians were in, in the crowd. But, of course, people were all about not certifying the election. You know, people that follow these neo-charismatic Pentecostal preachers that were pro-Trump, those that had backed Trump all, all the way, those that were saying that the election was stolen. Of course, absolutely, absolutely. And it's part of the spiritual warfare package. When you have people on January 6th on, the, you know, going around blowing shofars, <laughs> you know, just, the, uh, just the, 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 the symbolism of what that represents, you see, it's, it's, it's a kind of an action of, of, of war, eh? of you're engaging the enemy, you're preparing the army for combat. So it's in acting in real time, you're, you're, you're kind of moving away. Like I said, Christians believe, many Christians believe in the idea of spiritual warfare. But now you're moving away. You're not, you're not remaining in the spiritual realm. You're moving into the physical. You see, now it's like there's a slippage from the 
the, the spiritual realm where you can, if you want, you can pray, you know, and you can ask God to protect you and you can ask God. Anybody could do that. Like, it's not against the law to pray, you know, uh, in your room somewhere with your church to to pray and say, God, you know, pr you know, help us, protect us against, you know, the evil schemes that we, we feel are against us. But then when you start, you know, engaging in concrete action and enacting and embracing rhetoric that is clearly goes beyond the bounds of simple you know, spiritual references, that's where the problem is, you see, and, and that's what we have seen. And that's what we're continuing to see when people are starting to talk about, you know, there might be a time where you have to, we're going to have to take the arms and protect, you know, and, and people calling for second civil war, you know, you, you, you have that language of civil war. I talk about it in my third chapter of the book. You're, you're using language that you know, maybe you as a leader, you understand this in spiritual terms, but those that follow you, you're so ambiguous in the way you, there's such ambiguity in the way you're using that language that people easily fall into uh, the the trap of, of actually enacting. It. Like it's it's very powerful symbols. You're going around and you're marching, you know, you're engaging in those Jericho uh, marches, you know, it's very powerful enactments. Eh? It's very powerful performances. And it speaks very much to your view of what democracy is. You see, you're, 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 you can't function when you're, you're questioning the results of an election. It's because you have problems in terms of the function of democracy and how governments should operate. And then you engage in all of these activities that kind of put to light your profound intents. Even if you're only talking, you're still shedding light. It, it, it really sends a very, very bad signal to people that are secular and to people that value pluralism. You're telling them, we don't agree with that. And you're, 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 you're contributing to the uh, strong polarization that exists now in in America. And, and finally, to, to, to wrap this conversation up, like how should the people, voters who are not part of this movement engage with it or organize against it? Because, you know, on the one hand, we don't want to fall into what they're doing and, and demonize the opposition or even yeah. like kind of suggest that they're, they're crazy, even if their ideas are so foreign or, or sound like that to you. How, how do we do that moving forward? What, what would you recommend? Yeah, it's, it's, it, this is the most challenging thing because can you reason, you know, that's the question. Can you reason with people that already have their minds set up and for them, you know, the way they read the Bible, the way they understand life and the relationship of faith to politics, there are, their minds is really, really made up. First of all, the best tools is for voters to educate themselves really understand what these people are, are what these people are all about what are they talking about understand their political theology understand the implications of their political theology recognize the language and then confront confront but again that's the tricky thing uh, Cyril. Uh, what uh, uh, what you were saying is that you don't want to fall into this this trap where you're going to demonize people and you're going to marginalize individuals where maybe you would have a chance to actually convince them of your point of view and the value of pluralism. 
it's we have to find ways. It's not to make people. I say this in my book. You know, we're never. It, it's hard to make people that are conservatives to make them more progressive. You know, they have ideas. They have conservative ideas. It's not that you you need to be converted to progressiveness. You know, if you can, okay. You know, if you understand the values of that, that's great. But rather, maybe also, if that can't be done, at least can you enter into the arena of discussion and be able to function and negotiate in the context of a pluralistic society to make them realize that, okay, maybe you have dreams of a past of, you know, this idea of America as a Christian nation, but maybe you have that dream. But the reality is not that anymore. How can we live together in this new reality? How can we agree to disagree? I don't know if it's possible, but I think we have to we have to give democracy a chance and we have to we have to fight for that. We have to fight for pluralism because it's the respect of all. We have to fight for ways that, you know, we are going to disagree, but that we can together live peacefully and not impose our, our worldview on others. If people want to adopt certain ideas, uh, let them be convinced themselves of that. Uh, but I think the primary thing is we need to know what they're talking about and to be educated. The purpose of my book was, was to do that, to give people some tools to understand the political theology, to understand what a spiritual warfare is, to recognize the language, to understand the language of eschatology. There's so different, so many ways that, you know, these Christians understand the end times. It, it becomes very confusing for people that are not familiar with this stuff. What's the rapture? Like, what's the tribulation? What is post-millennialism? What is this? What is, you know, they're talking and we lose it at one point. And then because we don't understand, we're just frustrated and we just react harshly, which is understandable. But if we get a sense of where they're coming from and what's their rhetoric about, then maybe we're in a better position to engage and engage in this kind of Socratic dialogue. But again, this may be utopic for me to think that way because, you know, the situation is, is very preoccupying at the moment in the U.S. Well, it's one of the most important issues and kind of movements that I think that we're facing now as a nation. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to get into this um, today, but it's actually part of a global movement as well. But for those of you who want to learn more, you definitely have to go to your local bookstore and order American Evangelicals for Trump, Dominion, Spiritual Warfare, and the End Times, Andre's new book. And Andre, thank you so much for taking the time to come on The Signal and speak with us. Thank you so much, uh, Cyril, for your kind invitation. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McAlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. Mm-hmm.